Radio 4 presents the Mark Steele Lectures, a series of lectures on people with a passion. Tonight, Leonardo da Vinci. The extraordinary thing about Leonardo was that he wasn't just any genius. He was a genius at art and a genius at science, which seems hard to believe because at my school, every class had one brainy kid who answered all the questions, magnesium sulfate, sir. <laughs> and then they'd offer that little extra bit, unless, of course, it's been exposed to freezing nitrogen. <laughs> and these kids were all useless at art. And then in every class, there was a girl who swore at teachers. There was a skinny kid who was brilliant at climbing, and a kid who came in once a week and the rest of the time trained at greyhounds for his uncle, and sometimes he'd sit on the gym roof with an air rifle. <laughs> was the kid who was brilliant at art. <laughs> Which may be why the rougher the area, the more artistic the kids are. Just look at the murals you get, for example, in Belfast, right? Now, in Britain, graffiti is usually stuff like, James is a tosser, with tosser spelt wrong. <laughs> but over there, they've got a whole city of Rolf Harris's running round the place, <laughs> running up to walls with pots of paint and brushes, going to, going to give him a little balaclava there, there you go. <laughs> Little Armalite rifle, can you tell what it is yet? He's a little fella from the UVF. <laughs> but Leonardo da Vinci wasn't just any great artist, he painted the Mona Lisa. Now, I'm not qualified, really, to state whether or not this is the greatest painting of all time or how it compares to modern art, but I do know the Mona Lisa could never have been painted at my school as we'd all have walked past it going, what you looking at? <laughs> In this lecture, I'm going to argue that Leonardo was actually a genius because he lived in a time and a place that looked forward to a new era of humanity. So every human was considered to be a potential genius. And Leonardo was someone who displayed a common characteristic of genius in that he hardly ever finished anything he set out to do. <laughs> uh, he was born in 1452 in the small town of Vinci, hence Leonardo da Vinci, in case anyone was thinking, oh, that's a coincidence. <laughs> The citizens of Florence were acutely aware of their historical position as standing at the beginning of this new era. And, of course, some people do make similar claims about our own times. You get these people who say, We stand at an onset of a techno-information revolution, blah, 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 blah. And you get people who go, We can do our shopping on the internet now! It's mar But they can't! You contact the shop via the internet and then a bloke comes round in a van. <laughs> Just like in the 1850s when the grocer sent round a lad on a bike. <laughs> chance back then of the grocer saying, I can't take your order, my notepad's crashed. <laughs> now, the city-states of Italy were driven by a different ethos from anything that had ruled before. The compass, the cannon, and the printing press had made possible a new world in which wealth and power was no longer tied to whoever owned the most land. Now it was possible to become wealthy or prominent or educated without coming from noble stock. 15th century craftsmen and traders were developing a new perspective here which was that every human should think for themselves. And this idea became known as humanism. Men were seen as in partnership with God, which is why later on in the Renaissance, Michelangelo could paint his famous ceiling with God and Adam the same size, as if God and man were now a team. The distrust of old religious values was summed up by the printed story of a man called Febo del Saracino, who was losing his eyesight. Now, some people claimed that this was because of his excessive addiction to lust. So when he went completely blind, he said, The Lord be praised! Now I'm blind, I'll be able to indulge all I want without fear of going blind. <laughs> 
Northern Italy, which was made up of small city-states, was the area where these new ideas flourished the most. They were fascinated, of course, by ancient Greece and Rome. So Leonardo then was born into this genuinely visionary environment as a, the product of a fling between his father, Ser Piero, who was a clerk, and his mother, Caterina. From the age of about five, Leonardo lived with his father. He had little or no formal education, partly because he wasn't from an elite family. And when he was a teenager, he and his father went to live in Florence. Of all the cities undergoing this revolution in ideas, Florence was the most vibrant, and Leonardo was then taken on by a goldsmith called Ferroccio. And this environment welcomed Leonardo, but artists were dependent on commissions from the ruling families, in particular the ruling Medici, who modestly called himself Lorenzo the Magnificent. Did you think he was an American wrestler? <laughs> but these are the things that are so flamboyant, the Italians. I shall be Lorenzo the Magnificent. Whereas our old monarchs went, oh, I don't know what to do about a nickname. What about the unready? <laughs> Leonardo impressed Lorenzo the Magnificent when one of his sketches attracted a crowd for two days. And from then on, his novelty was the scientific method with which he approached his art. He decided that pre-Renaissance art was flawed because it failed to portray images in accordance with the way that the human eye receives them. They would often paint three separate sections as if it were a cartoon strip. Now, Leonardo recognised that to recreate the image seen by the natural eye, a painter has to have a mathematical understanding of perspective. Now, obviously, people had some idea of this before Leonardo. You didn't get people coming back from Egypt saying, well, we got about five miles away from the pyramids, and guess what? They're only about an inch big, so we came home. <laughs> but Leonardo drew hundreds of complex diagrams to analyse the lengths of shadows on spheres and cylinders so that he could paint a scene that would appear as the eye would see it naturally. Naturally. Now, he worked out that to do this, a painting had to revolve around what he called a vanishing point, which is the point at which parallel lines appear to converge. So, for example, if you're stood in a desert and you've got two straight roads ahead of you, one to your left and one on your right, there would be a point at which, ahead of you, they appeared to meet. And that would be the vanishing point. His mathematical approach even extended to his method for working out the cost of his work. Leonardo's bill for decorating a palace hall read... Outlay for blue, gold and other colours, one and a half lira. 24 pictures of Roman history, 14 lira each. Portraits of philosophers, 10 lira each. Just like a builder. That's probably how the Mona Lisa ended up like that. He said... I mean, a whole laugh. You're looking at 15 lira plus labour. <laughs> and then you've got your teeth, you see. For 12, I could do you a faint grin, make it good, you'll never know the difference. <laughs> While working for the Medicis, he wrote... Let no man who is not a mathematician read the elements of my work. What a brilliantly pretentious thing to say. <laughs> I wonder if he carried this out, so when people were looking at his paintings, he'd wander up behind them and go, Nine eights. <laughs> and they went, oh, 68. Security, off. <laughs> In this way, he was the classic artist, prone to strops and torment. About his working conditions, he said, In order that the prosperity of the body shall not harm that of the spirit, the painter must be solitary. For if you are alone, you are completely yourself. But if you are accompanied by a single companion, you are only half yourself. And I do have complete sympathy there. Because if it was anything like the same then as it is now, every time he was just at the point of working out something crucial, the phone would ring. Hello, is that Mr Da Vinci? Good afternoon, it's Helen here from BT. I wonder if you've got a few minutes for me to tell you about our September offer of buy eight handsets, get one free. And he was like a builder in another respect, in that he never seems to finish. In his mid-twenties, he got his first independent commission that's recorded to sculpt an altarpiece 
in the chapel of St. Bernard. Then he received a first payment, but he never did the work. Then he was contracted to deliver another altarpiece for the chapel of the Conception in Milan, but he never did it. So that led to the church taking out a legal action, which wasn't resolved for 25 years. Then the monks of San Donato Escopeto paid him to do another altarpiece, giving him 30 months to complete it. And after seven months, he stopped work on it and never touched it again. It's easy to imagine here that Leonardo was just being a wide boy. There must have been a bit of him going, bad. what sort of evies are going to be sent after me by monks? Because <laughs> he can't have expected a knock on the door in the night with friars going, Nice workshop you've got here, Leonardo. <laughs> Wouldn't like to see it, say, burn down in an, uh, accident. <laughs> One of his most famous paintings, The Virgin of the Rocks, is extraordinarily complicated. Dozens of characters and galloping horses. And to someone like myself who's utterly useless at art, this technical perfection seems amazing. But that's because I'm staggered by anyone who can draw at all. I can see a drawing on the inside of a public toilet door, and while half of me's going, oh my God, the other half's thinking, how do they get the bend in the legs so realistic? <laughs> With Virgin of the Rocks, next to the Virgin Mary is a philosopher, giving human ideas a status they never could have held in pre-Renaissance times. He made sure he kept in with his employers, so it can appear that, unlike the ancient Greeks and the Romans that he admired, Leonardo didn't have an interest in politics, but he did have to work for a family that ran the state, so he was never really in a position to offer a criticism. Florence had won control of Pisa. Milan was under constant threat from the French and the Spanish. Both cities were in conflict with Venice, and they all feared Rome. And Leonardo knew that the sforzas of Milan were threatened on all sides by everybody, and so he offered his services as an artist who could double as a military engineer. Although another reason why the Sforzas may have been keen to employ him was that Leonardo could play the lute. According to the 16th century writer Vasari, He surpassed all the musicians who had assembled to perform. Not only that, but Leonardo had made his lute himself out of silver in the shape of a horse's skull, which must make him the world's first heavy metal lute player. <laughs> Milan! <laughs> this next one's called I'm a Renaissance Sex Pig! <laughs> if my perspective's not defective, you're a chick I should anoint. I wanna love you till you fall through your vanishing point. Ooh, I'm a sex pig! Leonardo also impressed the Sforzas with his plans for a statue of Francesco Sforza. His aim was to create an 80-foot-high bronze statue of Francesco riding right. a horse. And he spent several days wandering around fields studying horses, but he kept getting distracted over a period of 15 years. <laughs> now, one of his projects that took him away from the horse was the design of possibly the world's first ever revolving stage for the theatre. He designed that, and there's still a debate about whether he was gay... Or, a few years later, he was commissioned to make something extraordinary to celebrate a visit from the King of France. And according to Vasari... He constructed a lion which advanced a few steps, then opened its breast, which was entirely filled with lilies. <laughs> what is there to debate? <laughs> what more evidence do you need that after the Mona Lisa he painted a line of blokes in string vests and hard hats singing Living La Vida Loca? <laughs> But there was another side to Leonardo's personal life that must have seemed extremely strange. He was a vegetarian. 
Now, this wasn't like now, when it's quite common for someone to come round to dinner and then say, oh, by the way, I'm a vegetarian, which I think is a bit like going round someone's house with a menu. <laughs> sitting there going, cook me that, please. <laughs> but at the time, no-one would have even heard of the word of vegetarianism. But not only was he a vegetarian, Leonardo would buy birds in the market at Milan, and then he'd take them home, open the cage, and let them fly off. He saw them as creatures who could teach humans about science by doing naturally what we strive to do artificially. So he imprisoned flies so that he could analyse how their buzzing helped them fly. And in his notebooks, he wrote about further experiments with flies. You will note that by trimming their wings a bit, or better still, by coating them with honey to prevent them flying, you can get their wings to make a muffled noise as they flap. <laughs> Which makes him a funny sort of animal liberationist, really, doesn't it? <laughs> Even more peculiar, when he lived in Rome, he found that he could blow up ram's entrails with bellows. And he would do this in the corner of a room at parties and then let the entrails go so that they went... <laughs> ..round the room and terrify the guests. His next major distraction from working on Francesco Sforza's horse was to paint the Last Supper on a monastery wall. Now, he was clearly dedicated to this painting because as well as his normal concern for mathematical perfection... For him, it represented the whole meaning of the Renaissance. Every previous Last Supper painting had shown Jesus at one end of the table and the apostles at the other. But Leonardo portrayed Jesus in the middle, not separate from the mortals. And whereas other paintings showed the calm of communion, Leonardo covered the drama of the moment when Jesus announced the betrayal. So the most interesting aspect is the reaction from the disciples. It's probably the first example of the technique used by soap operas at the end of an episode, where someone says something like, I've found out who my real father is. And you see the faces on every other character. In fact, it would fit perfectly. <clears throat> I have some news. One of you is going to betray me. <gasps> Goodness! I don't believe it. <laughs> but again, it took years longer than planned. A prior came to complain. So Leonardo wrote to the head of the monastery. Your Excellency is aware that only the head of Judas remains to be done, and he was an egregious villain. To this end, for about a year, I've been going every day to the area where the ruffians live but have not been able to discover a villain's face corresponding with what I have in mind. But I may take the features of the prior who came to complain <laughs> to fit the requirements perfectly. <laughs> he was also distracted from the horse by his scientific studies. He taught himself Latin so that he could read the original scientific writings of the ancients. A hundred years before the birth of Isaac Newton, he wrote, It is not possible to describe the movement of water unless one defines gravitation. Leonardo was possibly the first person to comprehend that light was something that travelled from its source. And then he worked out that the appearance of the sky as blue was a result of chemicals combining in the atmosphere. Even more visionary were his theories on sound. 400 years before Marconi, he wrote, The sound made in the air spreads out in circles. But his most celebrated work in science concerned the quest to fly. The first crucial jump that he made can be seen in phrases like, a substance offers as much resistance to the air as the air to the substance. So he understood that the air is something and not nothing. See, people like me still can't get that. And there's even a bit of me that feels a bit safer when we're over the clouds, because you think, well, at least if it conked out now, we could wait on them for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> he starts his writing on flight by saying... 
A bird is an instrument working according to mathematical law. So for him, there was nothing magical or evangelical about flight. It was just a matter of working out the laws. So to start with, he built a pair of wings with strips of wood along them to perfectly match the nerves of a bird. Each wing was covered with feathers and had retractable flaps for takeoff and landing. And then he devised what we know as a propeller in something that looks like a prototype helicopter. All this was 400 years before planes were invented, and now we're so blasé about flying. I was on a plane just about to come back from Barbados, and the pilot said, we've got the wind a little bit against us on the flight, so we'll be landing at Heathrow about 20 minutes later than scheduled. And the woman next to me went, oh, typical. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, so we're travelling across an entire ocean. 3,000 miles, 100 years ago, it would have taken a month, and we're doing it in one night, and all you can think is, oh, now I'm going to miss Ready, Steady, Cook. <laughs> well, you'd think they'd be able to do something about stopping the wind from blowing. <laughs> now, it's easy to underestimate how remarkable these statements were, because we know them. We can think, well, what's so clever about working out that the world's round? I knew that when I was seven. The point is that just as we're brought up to know that the sun doesn't move, he was brought up with equal determination to know that it did. So before he could work out that it didn't, he had to learn to question everything. Describing his method, he said, We must doubt the certainty of everything which passes through the senses, but how much more ought we to doubt things contrary to the senses, such as the existence of God and the soul? Now, this would have been radical enough when I was at school, when we had to sing hymns in assembly, and the teachers were trained to spot one of us in the packed hall going... <laughs> and the teacher had spot us through crowd, 500 people, and grab her hair and go, sing! As if God was an early version of Ofsted. <laughs> so you can imagine what a shocking thing this was to say in Italy in about 1490, except that few people knew he said it because it was only in his notebooks. And also, although he approved of doubting God, this was, he insisted, to prove that God did exist. Leonardo's view of the universe was that every part of it was linked and affected every other part, so no piece of it could be understood in isolation. The true scientist had to be an artist. The artist had to be a geologist and so on. If he was to meet Stephen Hawking, he'd probably say, you're not a proper scientist, you can't play the lute. <laughs> and there is the clue to why he had so much trouble getting anything finished. He'd start a project and then get distracted and obsessed with something entirely different. So in 1490, eight years after arriving in Milan, he wrote in his diary... Time to make a fresh start with the horse. <laughs> so he carried on with his miniature clay model of the horse in 1493 and then left it for another seven years. <laughs> then the French invaded, took the clay model and used it as target practice for their archers. For all his genius, he doesn't really seem to have grasped the idea of work, does he? <laughs> that if you're a postman and the manager says, have you delivered all the mail, he's not going to be happy if you say, nope, not a single letter. <laughs> I have invented an easy pull type of corkscrew. <laughs> the French invasion of the Italian cities set the Renaissance back temporarily, and for the rest of his life, Leonardo was a bit like a footballer in the last years of his career, flitting from one town to another for a season at a time. And then he went to Rome to work as a military engineer for Cesare Borgia. You get an idea of the sort of leader Cesare was from his official title. Cesare Borgia of France, by the grace of God, Duke of the Romagna and of Valencia and Urbino, Prince of Andrea, Lord of Piombino, Gonfalonere, and Captain General of the Holy Roman Church. 
So, listening to him being announced would have been like listening to a DJ on a pirate radio station. Give it up for the Grand Duke himself and his posse Romania Valencia and the notorious URB INO going out to Andrea the Prince, keeping it real for the Lord of Piombino and his lady Don Felionario, enlarging it up with the Holy Roman Church massive. Leonardo assisted Cesare's military campaigns by compiling maps, devising ways of draining marshes and accompanying Cesare on some of his raids, along with a friend who was also working for him called Vitalozzo. But then one night, Cesare had Vitalozzo strangled. You do get the impression that the most useless job in the world would be health and safety rep for the staff of Cesare Borgia. Our management have agreed to fix the broken step that leads to the toilet, but still no movement on the strangling issue, I'm afraid. <laughs> Leonardo returned to Florence and began a flurry of painting, and in this time he created the most famous work of art in Western history. The wife of a local merchant posed for him, but according to Vasari, he was so concerned that his model should retain an air of joy that... Musicians played and sang and continually jested in order to take away any melancholy from the portrait. That was a bit of a gamble, wasn't it? Hour after hour of minstrels buzzing over her like some busker in Covent Garden. It was lucky the Mona Lisa didn't end up as a picture of a woman shouting, Go away before I ram that mouth organ up your arse! <laughs> It's hard to view the Mona Lisa objectively because you can't be sure whether you're impressed by the beauty of the painting or by the fact you're looking at something that is so famous. Because there's definitely something utterly captivating about a portrait which is undoubtedly beautiful but without in any way being sexual. You can't imagine that the schoolboys of Florence were passing copies of it under the desk going, ooh, look at a smile on that. <laughs> Perspective, vanishing points, studies of plants, all these things are there as part of the rules that he employed for the Mona Lisa. The result is evidence that a rational approach doesn't detract from the spiritual side of human experience, but adds to it, partly because she's only just smiling. Which is slightly uncomfortable, isn't it, with the Mona Lisa? When someone looks at you like that, you think, what? <laughs> well, have I amused you? Have I annoyed you? What? One of the staggering things about his work on this painting was that it was interrupted by his plans to build a canal from Florence to the sea. This, he assured the rulers of the city, would enable the town to surprise the French army by popping up behind them with an unexpected navy. <laughs> it would in the road. <laughs> from Florence, he went back to Milan, and while he was there, he pursued his next obsession, the human anatomy. But to do this, he had to use a method that was a bit controversial at the time, dissecting bodies. Others may perhaps be deterred by natural repugnance, and if this does not prevent you, you may perhaps be deterred by fear of passing the night hours in the company of these corpses. Too bloody right you would! <laughs> bloody nutcase! I wonder if you used to wander around the house going, now, where did I put that eye? <laughs> Honestly, I'd forget me head if it wasn't on a plate in the fridge. <laughs> Until then, a healthy body was believed to be one that contained the correct balance between blood, bile and phlegm, along with the right amount of hot, cold, wet and dry. No one had ever studied each organ separately, so he became the first person to work out how nerves originate in the spinal cord. He discovered the existence of the appendix, and he discovered the role of the sphincter, which he referred to as the gatekeeper. <laughs> which it is really, isn't it? It's like one of them blokes that stands by the front of a queue at a fairground ride, going, wait, hang on, wait, all right, now four of you, come on. <laughs> But the organ that he wrote about, with possibly the greatest clarity, was the penis. 
He wrote... It confers with intelligence and sometimes has intelligence of itself. <laughs> sometimes, although the will of the man desires to stimulate it, it remains obstinate and sometimes it moves by itself without license from the man. <laughs> Whether he be sleeping or waking, it does what it desires. This creature has a life and intelligence separate from man. Man is in the wrong in being ashamed to exhibit it. He should display with ceremony the one he serves. Yeah, I'll say he's got it. <laughs> After six years in Milan, Leonardo returned to Rome, where a Medici, Leo X, had been elected Pope, and the new Pope became Leonardo's latest patron and put him up in the Vatican. But according to Vasari, he was assigned a picture to paint, and then seven months later, the Pope asked if he could see how far Leonardo had got, and Leonardo said excitedly that instead of painting, he'd been designing a new type of varnish out of herbs. <laughs> then he was caught stripping corpses for his studies, and it would have taken a very good union rep indeed to keep his job after that. <laughs> So one way to end this programme would be to conclude it in the style of Leonardo. Right there, preferably in mid-sentence, followed by, I don't know what happened after that, but I've invented this brilliant wind-powered cake stand. <laughs> but Leonardo actually went back to Rome again, where he developed an intense dislike of Michelangelo, who was painting the ceiling. Michelangelo had been to university, which Leonardo resented, and once in public, Leonardo was asked a scientific question and answered, Michelangelo will solve it for you. To which Michelangelo replied, Explain it yourself. <laughs> fight, fight, fight. <laughs> Leonardo felt Michelangelo was being snobbish because of regular references Michelangelo made to Leonardo's upbringing. And it reminds me a bit of the journalist who honestly said to me once, said, So, did you go to Oxford or Cambridge? And when I said, Well, I never went to university, he said, Goodness, story of straight from Barrow Boy into the media then, was it? <laughs> Leonardo eventually went to France for his final years, and uh, he died in France. By then he was living with a flatmate who collected all his stuff together when he moved, including the Mona Lisa, I believe, and all his notebooks, in a cart, and he wheeled them up the lane to where he was moving to. And so I love that idea that at some point someone must have seen this bloke walking along with a cart full of all Leonardo's work and gone, oh, look at that poor old sod, that's all he's got in the world. <laughs> Film, art, music and design are all considered important in Britain because they generate impressive turnover or because they're a vital strand of our export market. Education, art and science are seen in the opposite way to how Leonardo saw them. New Labour's attitude to Mona Lisa would be, it's a marvellous example of how a small business can grow to become a leading exporter of smiles throughout Europe. <laughs> And however sloppy Leonardo may have been about finishing things, at least he finished the Mona Lisa. Except that he didn't. He kept it himself until the day that he died, insisting it was never quite finished. So we'll never know how it was supposed to look in the end. Maybe he was planning to get a can of spray paint and go, Michelangelo is a tosser. <laughs> Michelangelo spelt wrong. Well, I've been some clever The Mark Steele Lecture was written and performed by Mark Steele with the help of Mel Hudson and Martin Hyder. The producer was Lucy Armitage. He didn't do a Mona Lisa. That was an Italian geezer.